Wonderful. Good to be home. It's good to be back. Shalom. Nasanu. What happened? <laughs> Sababa. So these are just some of the vocabulary words we learned in our trip to Israel. Nasanu means let's go. So uh, I guess let's go in the text. But it was a good time. Um, we were really blessed. I thank everybody for praying. Those of you that were praying for our team, for our trip and everything, uh, I feel like the Lord really uh, uh, just brought everything together so perfectly. It was uh, definitely, it's my third time going to Israel, definitely my favorite uh, of all three. So it was a great time and uh, so many memories to share uh, with all of the folks that went and so many stories to tell. And so I hope that uh, you grab a hold of somebody that went and so they, they can tell you all the marvelous things that we did, but um, I'm glad to be home, so happy to be home, praise God for America, let me just say that, uh, <laughs> Israel's wonderful, but it's not America, I mean, we're really blessed here, and uh, I'm just glad to be home, back with my family, my church, and uh, back to, be, to do what I really love doing, which is preaching and teaching God's word. Let's pray one more time, ask the Lord to bless our time together in his word today, okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your faithfulness. I just, uh, I, I feel impressed to thank you for uh, just this trip that we just had to Israel, and and thank you for bringing us all home safely, Lord. It's uh, traveling such a distance is truly a um, uh, can be a harrowing experience and taxing experience. So I'm just grateful, Lord, that you were uh, merciful to us in this trip, and um, we give you all glory for that. So good to be home, and I'm grateful that, Lord, I have another opportunity to stand before your people and to stand beneath your word and to preach your word and teach your word, and I ask now, Lord, that you would come, that you would be faithful to your word, and that you would help me, give me the mercy to speak, give me the grace, Lord, to communicate to your people your will, and I just pray that you would assist me now by the power of your spirit to speak forth your truth, keep me from error, and keep your people uh, from error, and uh, keep us in the truth, Lord, um, uh, keep us sound in faith, keep us sound in doctrine, and Lord, keep us vibrant in our spirit and in our lives for you. Bless this time, I pray, Father, in Christ's name, amen. Well, what a text to come home to. This is uh, known among preachers as one of those difficult texts, one of those texts that people don't look forward to preaching, really, unless you're thoroughly convinced one way or another, uh, and I think I am, but uh, it's an amazing passage for so many reasons, but I want to just kind of recap where we've been, where we are now, what's going on. Uh, the book of Thessalonians and First and Second Thessalonians alike are two letters that predominantly deal with the subject of eschatology. But within that, within the, the subject of the day of the Lord, there's also some practical things that the apostle wants to talk about. And that's what we've been looking at in our exposition of this book. Beginning in verse 12, we focused on the practical theology of the apostle Paul. And he's dealt with so many different subjects here, but... Uh, uh, if you go back up to verse 16, remember there he gave some positive commands. He told the church to uh, rejoice, he told the church to pray, and he told the church to give thanks and everything. Now, those are positive commands. Here, he has some, ne on the negative side of that, he warns them against things that deal with the Spirit of God. He says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And so here, the apostle sort of shifts gears and focuses on pneumatology, pneumatology, which is the study of the Spirit. The study of the Spirit is so important because the Spirit in the church is what keeps the church sound, healthy, vibrant, zealous, joyful, hopeful. It's the Spirit that is at work in the church. Uh, this is what distinguishes the church from all other types of groups, communities, societies, uh, gatherings. Our gathering is unique because it is infused by the Spirit of God. It is informed by the Spirit of God and it is influenced by the Spirit's gracious 
operations upon the church. There's so much to be said about the Spirit. As I faced, uh, I stared down this text, I thought, man, my mind is going in a million different directions. I can make a ten-part series just out of the word Spirit or the Spirit. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we often neglect the doctrine of the Spirit. Uh, the doctrine of the Spirit is so critical, though, I thought we should take some time just to think about it. It may be misunderstood. It might be perplexing. It may be downright difficult at times to get into uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But the work of the Spirit is uh, crucial. Uh, Just in a few weeks, I'll be going to Mexico to do a conference with Joseph Urban, who was on the trip to Israel with us. And I'll be talking about the doctrine of the Trinity And I'm looking forward to that. This was kind of like a precursor for me to get ready to think Trinitarianly and think uh, in terms of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But obviously you understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It is not simply a power. It's not simply a principle. The Holy Spirit is the, the person of the Godhead that Scripture talks about who was there at the beginning of creation. It was the Spirit of God that hovered over the creation. It is the Spirit of God that is active both in creation, both in providence and in redemption and in eschatology. The Spirit is all over the text of Scripture. And as prominent as the Spirit is in theology, in the Bible, we neglect the Spirit. We, we undermine the importance of the Spirit. See, the Spirit is as much God as the Father and the Son. Uh, you know this, of course. But it's important to understand that He is equal in power, in deity, in eternity. The Spirit, when He is rightly distinguished, plays a distinct role in the Godhead. As the Spirit, His role is to execute, as I said, creation, to sustain the work of God's providence. Job chapter 34 says that everything is sustained by the Holy Spirit. A remarkable verse. The work of the Spirit, of course, is seen prominently in redemption. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that it is the Spirit of God that is sealing us for the day of redemption, the day that uh, God will finally procure all of His people for the purpose of glorifying them in heaven. The Spirit is obviously active in our sanctification, and He is active in the act of revelation, which is really what we're going to come to in this text. In terms of His role among the Godhead, the Spirit has the same intimate relationship with the Father and the Son. Just as He is the Spirit of the Father, He is also the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. By the way, for all these points that I'm making, I have proof texts in the manuscript, so you may want to go look at that. He shares in the same essential glory as the, uh, of the divine as the Father and the Son. The Spirit shares in the mission of the Son which is the mission of the Father. Uh, Everything that the Father and the Son do, they do it in conjunction with the Spirit. From the birth of the Son, to the ministry of the Son, to the death and the resurrection of the Son, we are told that the Holy Spirit is informing and active and involved and powerful and, 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 and all of those things. The Spirit is not only an essential part of Trinitarian thought, but He's also an essential part of the life of the church and the believer's life as well. In fact, we should say that everything that the church does comes from the Spirit. If it doesn't come from the Spirit, where is it coming from? If it comes just from our mind, just from our own ingenuity, our own innovations, our own imaginations, that falls terribly short of what God intends for the church. The church is to be uh, the household of God that is animated by the Spirit of God, that is empowered, illuminated by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is there to keep us in intimate communion with God. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 speaks of the fellowship of the Spirit, which gets to His intimacy, the power of the Spirit, the words of the Spirit, the wisdom of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit and the soul of man. That's what we're talking about. The Holy Spirit is so critical for Christian theology, that our eternal existence in heaven will consist of being translated into the world of the Spirit. That's what heaven is, brothers and sisters. The heaven is going to be the place where the Spirit is granted to us beyond measure. 
and no longer inhibited by the world, the flesh, and the devil. No longer inhibited or hindered in any way that he is hindered in our lives today. If there's one thing we need more of right now in our lives, it is, this, is more of the, a, a, a greater measure of the Spirit working in our lives. Uh, that's the same thing as saying if there's one thing we need more today, it's to be more like Jesus Christ. It's one of those generalizations pastors are allowed to make. Because he is so critical, he's so crucial. But in this text, um, the Apostle Paul is focused on something quite particular, and that is the revelatory work of the Spirit. I want to look at the Spirit's activity here along three lines. Number one, the intimacy of the Spirit. Number two, the communication of the Spirit. That really gets to the revelatory part. And number three, the discernment of the Spirit. So the very first thing here that I want to focus on is this intimacy. What, you know, I could have labeled it different things, but I decided to go with the term intimacy because what I'm really talking about is the sensitivity of the Spirit. Where do I get that from? Well, notice the first statement that Paul makes in the text in verse 19. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Now, we should consider that, that phrase right there on its own merits. Do not quench the Spirit. So that before Paul gets to the particulars of this text, he first sets out the general principle that we do not want to quench God's Spirit. It's remarkable here, uh, the language that's being uh, used, do not quench the Spirit. What does it refer to? How do we do that? What, what happens if we quench the Spirit? Well, I want to point out three things just based on that language there of quenching the Spirit. Number one, like I said, the, the Spirit's intimacy or His sensitivity. Here, the Spirit is drawn in the metaphor of fire. The Greek word there, sebenumi, uh, is the word that literally means to extinguish something like a fire or a flame. Uh, to extinguish the Spirit means that the Spirit is to be a fire that we light, that we keep lit, that we fan into flame, that is burning constantly within us. It's not wrong to think of the Spirit along those lines because Scripture uh, uses the language of fire in association with pneuma, both human and divine. In other words, even our human spirit, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 6, that we are to keep it fervent. That language of fervency speaks of keeping it burning within us. Also, John the Baptist speaks of a baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. And of course, the Spirit coming at Pentecost in tongues of fire as a symbol of His redemptive power and His redemptive presence and the Spirit's prophetic activity in the church, communicating to the world through the church. That's what the tongues of fire symbolized, that this was inspired uh, by the Spirit of God. The metaphor of fire helps us to understand the Spirit's work in our own lives, a work that can be snuffed out. And this is very important because if we're only thinking about quenching the Spirit in terms of charismata or in terms of the charismatic gifts or in terms even of prophecy, which is what's being referred to here, then we're going to miss the general principle I think that we should get. And that is that through our own sin, unbelief, our own apathy, our own uh, lukewarmness, our own hardness of heart, our own loveless worship, we can, by the neglect of the means of grace, we can quench the Spirit's work in our lives. It's amazing, isn't it? Don't forget, brothers and sisters, that sanctification, in terms of its progressive nature, let's distinguish between definitive sanctification, meaning the once for all setting apart of the believer for God in, through regeneration, and the progressive aspect of our sanctification, that ongoing work of God to sanctify His people, to grow us, to make us more like Christ. Don't forget that that progressive sanctification is a synergistic work. In other words, it's an activity that involves God working in us and we working with God cooperation, okay? Some things in salvation are monergistic. Uh, For example, regeneration, being born again, is a strictly monergistic work. You did not participate when God caused you to be born again. That was a sovereign, monergistic act of God. But in your day-to-day life, in sanctification, as God is seeking to grow you, the Spirit is influencing you in such a way that He is calling you to respond. 
He's calling you to be involved. He's calling you to be intentional about your own growth as He grows you. And if we neglect, as I said, just to sum up, if we neglect, for example, the means of grace, what are the means of grace? Well, prayer, going to church, fellowship, participating in the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism. If we neglect those things, then we can quench the Spirit in our lives, which, of course, we do not want to do. So many people today neglect the Spirit. I neglect the Spirit. I was thinking about this. You know, pastors always talk about what people do. But let me confess that in my own life, uh, I am not attuned to the Spirit as I ought to be. I need to grow in this. I need to progress and make gains in the Spirit's involvement in my own life. I mean, uh, think of our our context culturally, okay? We live in a culture that is anti-supernatural or wacky supernatural, (laughs) one or the other. But essentially, we are anti-supernaturalists from the day that we're born into this culture. We are told that evolution is true. We are told that we live in a closed system. We are told that there's no such thing as spirits or souls or, you know, anything like that. And so right away, we are at a disadvantage spiritually. We don't believe in angels. We don't believe in souls. We don't believe in the spirit, at least not in our humanistic presuppositions. So we need the word of God to reorient our worldview, to understand that, in fact, we live in a supernatural world. We live in a world with spirits, with angels, with demons, and the Holy Spirit of God is active, working, operating, not just in the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but in the believer's life and in his heart to conform us to Christ. Some Christians are so ignorant of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that they're sort of like the disciples that Paul encountered in Ephesus, disciples of John, remember? We have not even heard whether there was a Holy Spirit. (laughs) But far be it from us that we should be so estranged from the Spirit of God that we are alien to His operations or that His operations are alien to us, foreign to us, strange to us. What this demands, brothers and sisters, is that you and I that we be pliable to the Spirit, that we be moldable, that we be teachable, shapeable, that we be sensitive to the Spirit who is Himself sensitive. I mean, think of the reason why I say I've got to start with the sensitivity of the Spirit is because it just amazes me that what Paul is saying here is that me, little old me, because of something I do or don't do, I can actually influence and I can actually stifle the Spirit of Almighty God and His work in my life. That's incredible to even ponder that. But it's true. Second of all, when we think of the phrase, don't quench the Spirit, we are reminded that we ourselves are spiritual creatures. Don't forget this. That you are a spiritual being. Everyone is a spiritual being in the sense that they have been created with a soul. But believers are not just created with a soul, but our soul has been renewed. We have been redeemed and we have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are spiritual creatures, spiritual people. We need to be spiritually oriented. We are not good at this. We are good at just kind of living, uh, uh, like I said, as anti-supernaturalists or take your pick, humanists or whatever. Uh, matter of fact, when in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, remember the church there began getting um, cliquish? Remember that some people were taking sides? I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm this, I'm that, right? And what, what is, how does he describe them? He says, you are, you are acting like mere men. What's the implication? You're not mere men. You're spiritual men and women, but you're acting like a mere man, a mere woman. You're acting like a mere human. You're more than that. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Matter of fact, is it any surprise that right after he says this in chapter 3, he goes on to talk about how the Spirit of God dwells within us and that we are the temple of the Spirit. We are spiritual creatures. The Spirit is involved in our lives. We're made for the Spirit. We are created for God and His Spirit to come and take residence within us. He regenerates us, and then what does He do? He renovates us so that He can reside within us. 
And then He can recreate us into the image of His Son. That's what the Spirit does. When we quench the Spirit in our lives, we are undermining our true identity as those who have been renovated by the Spirit, to be indwelt by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. It is not until we truly understand the Spirit's agency in our lives that we will see what is at stake in quenching the Spirit within us. One example of this, brothers and sisters, is that His gracious influence in our lives is there to to aid us and to help us. For for example, go to Romans chapter 8. And it is seminal. I was... I couldn't get out of Romans chapter. I was... I don't know how you say it, but I was stumbled by Romans 8. <laughs> I, I was getting concerned I wasn't going to finish my sermon because I got into Romans 8. I couldn't get out. You know, I'm supposed to study Thessalonians, and out came the commentaries for Romans 8. I was like, uh-oh, I don't know how long this is going to last, but Romans 8 is so incredible. I, I'm going to, I think I'm going to do a series of sermons on Romans. I don't know, I don't want to commit, but... It's just so monumental. I'm thinking to myself, when am I going to get around to Romans chapter 8? It might be years before I get to Romans 8. I don't want that. You know, as emotional as we are as people, because of our trials, because of our troubles, our sin, our suffering, what, what have you, we forget that the Spirit is there to help us emotionally. Forget that? Look at Romans 8, chapter, uh, uh, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. Now, I've made, a, I've made an issue of this in the past. Notice he doesn't say weaknesses. Do you just have one weakness? You say, well, why do you say weakness and not weaknesses? Because you know what he's saying here? What he's saying here is he's saying something about your state. He's saying something about your makeup, your identity. He's saying something about who you are. That in the present age, you are still in a state of weakness. And we need help. We need strength. He says, for we do not even know how to pray as we ought to, he says. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. Talk a lot about the intercession of Christ. What about the intercession of the Spirit? He says, He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, what the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 27 might sound a little bit tricky, but basically what he's saying is that God understands the Spirit even though we don't understand the Spirit. And what he says, the Spirit intercedes for us. He works in conjunction with our emotional upheavals. All of our pious petitions in our soul in our heart, in our spirit, our penitent contrition, our spiritual Godward longings, that of the inner man, what cannot be impre- expressed by the limitation of our words, that's when the Spirit gets to work. When our vocabulary runs out, the person of the Spirit begins to speak on our behalf. The Spirit speaks the language of the soul. He interprets the profundity of our agony. And let's, let's be honest, uh, all of us here can speak to this. We have agonies. We have agonies of all sorts. We have domestic agonies, agonies in the family, agonies of the marriage, agonies of your health, agonies of whatever. Spiritual agony, depression agony, anxiety agony. Should I go on? All sorts of agony. And the Spirit is there to help us with that. He understands our sighs and tears that fill up our lives. What a merciful Spirit the Spirit of God is. Amen? Failure to see the Spirit's ministry results in a loss of the comfort of the Spirit. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says the church was to continue on in the comfort of the Spirit. But when we do not avail ourselves to the ministry of the Spirit, or we don't understand it, or we underestimate it, or we neglect it, then we fail to experience in a true experiential sense the comfort of the Spirit, the peace 
that the Spirit grants to us that peace that surpasses all understanding because we will not simply receive from the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. And maybe one of the most precious ministries of the Spirit in our lives is His ministry to be a promissory spirit. In other words, to be what Paul calls an araban, a pledge, a deposit. He speaks to us of greater things to come. That'll encourage you. That'll wake you up out of your slumber when the Spirit of God reminds you and vivifies you based on the things that He promises to you. The last thing is this. third thing is this. We should consider the ramifications of disobeying Paul's command of regarding the Spirit. Of course, this assumes that we understand what quenching the Spirit means. Now, before we get to the specific topic of prophecy, the topic of the text, The general principle here is that we can, by our stubborn unbelief... Now, listen closely now. So we can fall into these things very easily. Because of our own unbelief, because of our hard-hearted timidity, that we don't want to press in, we don't want to get involved, we don't want to participate too much. Because of our idolatrous civility. Do we have idolatrous civility? Man, I worked hard on these terms. I think so. We're so worried about what the culture and society and what the church thinks of us that in some churches, I tell you what, it's like a sin to be zealous. Hello? I mean, talking to a good friend of mine, he's having a really hard time going to a Reformed church in his area, just looking around everywhere he goes. It's just dead religion. Perfect doctrine. Dead religion. What a contradiction. What's missing? I'd venture to say what's missing is that no one is availing themselves to the Spirit of God because of an idolatrous civility. We prize civility so much. Men will not even obey Paul's injunction, Timothy, to lift up your hands without wrath. Too dignified to lift up your hands in worship? What's wrong with you? Not worthy. You used to do it in the concerts. It's the greatest concert on earth. Every Sunday we come here and worship the living God. If you think I'm taking you down the path of radical, you know, charismatic or Pentecostal, I'm not. But (laughs) zeal is good, even if it's a little risky. Um, the next thing is this, not just the Spirit and His intimacy, His sensitivity, but also the Spirit's communication, which gets more closely to what Paul's talking about here. Let's look at the text again. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Now, for some reason, the NASB here has an unfortunate translation. It translates this word propheteos as prophetic utterances. I don't know why. The RSV, even worse, the words of the prophets. There's only one problem. The, the word words is not there and the word prophets is not there. Uh, so what's the RSV doing? I don't know. Go ask them. Paul simply uses this phrase. Propheteos me exuthenete. He says, prophecies do not despise. That's all he's saying. Prophecies do not despise. Now, why am I making a a point of this. I understand that the utterance of these prophecies is not far behind. I understand that those who are uttering the prophecies are not far behind. But Paul did not put all that. The only thing he put is not to despise prophecies. Because I think what he's saying here is that in whatever form they come, whether spoken or written, we are not to despise prophecies. You know that prophecies... The prophetic word of God, the word of God, ultimately, has a long history. And really, ultimately, humanity has a long history, especially in the history of redemption in Scripture, has a long history of despising God's word, despising the the words of the prophets. Uh, For example, let me read to you Isaiah chapter 30, beginning of verse 9. 
He says in Isaiah 30, verse 9, this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. It's just remarkable because a video, a film is getting ready to come out uh, that I'll be actually, that I was actually featured in. It's called The American Gospel. And it has all these wonderful theologians and stuff in there, and they're all exposing all this false theology that's out there. And one of the things that they expose is like the Word of Faith movement and just all kinds of terrible stuff. But you get from these, you know, Joel Olstein's like, are we still dealing with Joel? Anyway, man! Hasn't he attained to his better life now? I mean, man, we're still dealing with Joel Steen. I mean, really? We went from Arius to Joel Steen. At least they had an argument, you know. <laughs> but it's the same thing, whether you're talking about the, 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 the seeker gospel or the prosperity gospel, the word of faith gospel, whether you're talking about consumerism gospel or social gospels or whatever kind of gospels other than the gospel. What people are saying is speak pleasant words to us. Speak things that make sense to us. Don't speak things that are difficult to stomach. A lot of people want a preacher like that. They want a preacher that's only going to preach things that they can stomach. Um, I just heard a a lecture on uh, teaching about the episode about Lot and his daughters, that incestuous episode in Genesis. And the guys both said, like, this is the part of the text pastors skip over. So you don't want to do a sermon series because it doesn't, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's difficult, it's a difficult subject to breach. But not if you believe that the Word of God is true and that the Word of God is inspired and profitable for correction, reproof, instruction, and righteousness so the man of God will be fully equipped, adequate, lacking nothing, right? Like if you believe that, then you'll teach all of the counsel of God. That's not what was happening in Isaiah's day. That's not what was happening in Ahab's day. In 2 Chronicles 18 and Ahab's day, they they wanted the same thing. They only wanted prophecies that assured them of success, even though God was explicitly prophesying that they were were going to be defeated. they They wanted the language of victory, the language of success. They didn't want a depressing word from God or the days of Joash, the king of Judah, and Jehoiada, the priest, that ultimately reared him until he died, and then Joash later uh, listened and was persuaded by the politicians of Judah to uh, side against the Lord and not to rebuild the temple and not to fix the temple. And the reason why that's important is because basically what they were manipulating him to do is to stray away from true worship. True worship. That's the importance of rebuilding the temple was that the true worship of Israel was gone. And even though God had mercifully tried to warn them through prophetic utterances, the people would not receive it. Yet He sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though He testified against them, they would not listen. Ironically, it was in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31, when the prophets and the priests were totally corrupt, Then, Jeremiah says, then my people love their prophecies. Once they've been emptied of their power, emptied of truth, emptied of conviction. The same kind of antagonism against the prophetic word of God happened in the life of John the Baptist. Of course, the apostles too. But also in Jesus' day. Remember what Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 43? Let me quote the ESV. He says after giving them his word over and over. He says, you cannot bear to hear my word. And that's right. I think that's a good translation because that's exactly, it's not they couldn't cognitively understand it or they couldn't cognitively follow what he was saying is that they didn't want to follow what he was saying. So unlike the wicked, Paul is directing the church against hardening their hearts against prophecies that were intended to guide them, to edify them, to exhort them, to encourage them. After all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the gift of prophecy was given for that purpose. It was given so that you would be edified and you would be encouraged and you would be exhorted in the faith. That was the whole purpose. 
They were to test such prophecies, not outright reject them with disdain. The only question is, is why did the church have a temptation to despise these prophecies? Here, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Maybe it was because they were uncomfortable with those who had the gift of prophecy. Maybe it was because perhaps they were frustrated with what was being prophesied. Or maybe it was because of all the false prophets, they had become confused and frustrated and no longer wanted to hear of any prophetic material. I think that last point is probably somewhat right. In 2 Thess, chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, we kind of get a glimpse into what may have been happening. Remember, we just got done here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, coming out of the theology of the day of the Lord and into the practical stuff we're talking about now. And so the day of the Lord eschatology is not far behind in the context. But look at what's going on here. He says, Now I request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him, which He already taught them in the first letter that you not be quickly shaken from your composure and disturbed, watch this now, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, and then the comparative clause, as if from us. That's the all-crucial phrase there. As if from us. And what's the... What are they disturbed about? To the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So somebody was taking up the mantleship of apostleship, a prophetic mantleship, either presently with them in person or writing to them what was supposed to be prophetic material about the coming of the Lord that shook them, that shook them, that disturbed the church, rattled the church, and then somebody who, ex- who actually had the gift of prophecy, uh, like an apostle or an emissary of the apostle, or somebody who was gifted uh, at that time to speak prophetic things, would come into the assembly, and now the church has his guard up. Now the church is like, I don't want to hear from you. We've already been shaken to the core. People are being moved. We are disturbed, right? And um, we don't want to tolerate any of that anymore. Perhaps that's what was going on. The last thing, though, is the Spirit's discernment. That's the Spirit's communication. But what about discernment? Because notice what the, uh, the instruction is. He says, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Or you can actually translate this. may even be a better translated, translation to say, abstain from every evil form. Because in the Greek text, and I don't have time to get grammatically into this, but there is cause for all of this to go together. Um, I understand that the phrase abstain from every form of evil, or if you have a King James, it might say abstain from every appearance of evil. I understand that that is a truism that we try to take into all of our Christian life, and that's right. But it has an exegetical context. And the context here is prophecy. And so when he says, abstain from every form of evil, what I'm saying, I think what Paul is saying, is abstain from every evil form of prophesying. False prophecy. Remember, see, I'm to be careful here because I understand that very sincere Christian brethren claim to have the gift of prophecy and could come up to you and give you a word of prophecy that they believe they have received from the Lord for you. But remember, remember, in the Old Covenant, to prophesy falsely was capital punishment. You speak something in the name of Yahweh, and it doesn't come to pass, you're dead. So the gravity, we've lost it. We've lost it. Now it's like, Okay, Todd Friel sent me a link to Matt Chandler. And Matt Chandler was talking about a prophecy that he got about, I don't know, he's like on a pirate ship and sharks are chasing him. No, 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 I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just, that's what his prophecy was. I don't get it. I can't recall it all exactly. almost don't want to. But something in the prophetic message that he said he claimed that he got, it corresponded to somebody's 
like garage band or something like that, and that, oh, that was comforting to that person. Okay, I guess that's prophecy. That's not biblical prophecy. That is not biblical prophecy. Pro- biblical prophecy is not a matter of a person's private interpretation. It's not your own subjective feeling that you think you're getting. Do you know, because I used to flow in you know, charismatic circles, you know how many people gave me prophecies and they began like this, I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you. Uh, Agabus didn't start with saying, I feel. Uh, the prophets in the Old Testament did not start with the, with the phrase, I feel like. The prophets were not, you know, valley girls. They were, <laughs> you know, like, I, I think like I got a prophecy for you. Man, my, 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 we have fallen. No, I think... If you want to just use a woman as an example, a prophecy would have sounded something like what Mary uttered in the Magnificat. Just this divine word that came forth. Perfect theology. Perfect. No subjectivism. It wasn't that, you know, oh, woe is me in this internal. At least you got the sound effect and everything. This internalizing of yourself and your feelings and your emotions just sort of spewing that out on people. No, 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 no. It was divine revelation. It was a thus saith the Lord. It was, it was that which conformed directly to the will of God. It wasn't guesswork. Okay? And so I believe, like in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, where it says that in those days, that at that time there were prophets... And that Paul and Barnabas and the emissaries of the apostles and many others had the gift of prophecy and can go into a church and prophesy to that church with the full authority of God. That's not what's going on today. Sharks chasing you on a pirate ship is not prophecy, folks. I'm sorry. I I was a little angry when I saw that video because... Matt Chandler is a popular guy, and I like a lot of what Matt Chandler says, but man, there's a lot of young people sitting under the influence of that nonsense, and uh, I don't like it. But, uh, okay, maybe I won't get invited to wherever or whatever. That's okay. Uh, When I just look at this, I think what Paul is saying here is that at this time, and I do believe that, you know, Christ, the apostles, that, uh, that apostolic age is distinct, it is unique, it is the pinnacle of redemptive history, and that that era, that Pentecostal era, is not normative for the church today, and that people today do not have these revelatory gifts anymore. And usually the argument, I'll just give you my position, I know maybe not everybody's going to, I know not everyone's going to believe what I'm saying or agree with what I'm saying, but my position is, is just simply that, you know, um, it is a misnomer to say, well, there is no verse that says those gifts have ceased. But I would come back and I would say to you, well, there's many things that it doesn't say has ceased. There's not a single verse in the Bible that says prophets have ceased, apostles have ceased, healers have ceased, miracle workers have ceased. But I don't believe there are miracle workers today, not biblical miracles. We're not talking about I prayed for you and a few weeks later your stomach flu went away. We're talking about Peter healing a man's limb. I do not believe that somebody today is so gifted so as to raise the dead, grow back a limb, perform theophanic miracles, literally awe-inspiring, fear-inspiring miracles uh, like that. I don't. And so in that sense, I am what is called a cessationist. I do believe that those revelatory gifts have ceased with the apostolic age, and I think for good reason. But the church was told to examine everything carefully and not just outright reject it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. The reason why I want to go here is because this is, a, in terms of proximity, and this is a longer sermon today. Sorry, just got back from Israel. You're going to get it. <laughs> I've been waiting for this one. So, so, so. So in Acts chapter 17, the reason I bring you here is because contextually we're dealing with a reference to the same people. And um, notice what Paul says about these Thessalonians. You know this verse. 
the brethren, uh, verse 17, beginning of verse 10, uh, sorry, chapter 17, beginning of verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those of Thessalonica, for they received the word with great readiness or great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So maybe there was an inherent skepticism in the Thessalonian church that they couldn't overcome. But the better thing, according to Paul, would be to test everything, to examine everything. Also, notice here that what, we, what we're given here is the infallible uh, rule of faith. In other words, this is the bar of discernment. The bar of discernment has been, is, and always will be none other than sola scriptura. The scriptures alone. Not whether or not you like it. Not whether or not it conforms to your experience. Not whether or not, you know, I was on the plane ride from Israel. I was having this conversation with Joseph Urban about some of these things. And we were talking about different things incredible experiences that he and I have had, very similar, and uh, dreams that we have had that's powerful, that seemingly inexplicable. And I said, you know, the problem with that, though, is that my unbelieving neighbor just recently told me of some incredible dreams that she had that came to pass with greater specificity than things that I can think of. So what does that mean? (laughs) Is she a prophet? I don't think so. I just think that this is exactly what Scripture is warning us against, that because such premonitions, such remarkable providences may exist, that we are not to put those things on par with biblical prophecy. We have to be very careful there. But here we're being told that everything was examined by Scripture, and that's exactly the, the, the type of examination I think Paul is calling for right here. If somebody didn't prophesy accurately, Deuteronomy 18 says, I'll quote it again, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come to pass or, tr- or come true, that is the thing in which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. You know, the reason why I quote that, because oftentimes in Pentecostal and, and uh, charismatic churches, these sorts of gifts are paraded around, just like they were in Corinthians, right? In 1 Corinthians where they were abusing the gifts and doing... And that's when the gifts I, you know, were abs- absolutely flowing and, and they were actually uh, operating in full force at that moment in time, undeniably. And even then, there was a, some sort of abuse. And you know what? In a lot of these Pentecostal-type situations, people will parade these you know, these attempted gifts as signs of maturity. And they will manipulate people and they will, and they will sort of use that as the sure sign that you're not questioning them and their walk with God, right? They might hold a total heresy, but because they speak in tongues, they're spiritual. <laughs> you know, and I've seen that. I, I even wrote down here, time would fail me to tell of all the horror stories that I have with regards to this. And I know that's not fair because if somebody believes in continuationist theology, they would say, well, you can't point to past experiences of yours and that sort of nullifies the doctrine of continuationism. No, no, that's true. But I'm also just being sincere that I've been around those who have purported to be prophets, who have purported to receive visions and dreams and prophetic words and speaking in other languages and tongues. And I can tell you that sadly, uh, many of those, at least that I've been around, have been patently falsified. I mean, I have old friends that spoke in tongues and are now atheists on Facebook. You know, um, know, people that have had visions and dreams that never came to pass. I'll never forget, I sat around a table with pastors and missionaries uh, at one point, and uh, back in Calvary Chapel, and everybody 
Everybody broke out their visions and dreams and prophecies that God had given them, even written down in journals specific things that were going to transpire. We're talking about people dreaming about other people dying. We're talking about other people dreaming and talking about prophecies that they had received, that people would give birth to children. That never came to pass. And that many of those individuals in that room are now apostate. I don't rejoice in this. But I'm just telling you that those are the sorts of things that take place. Those are the kind of things that take place. Well, let's close by going to 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. What do we do now? If we do not have access to prophets, if we don't have access to those who have the gift of prophecy with whom we can depend to receive a fresh word from God, now what do we do? Well, Peter tells us, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-2, to 2, notice his emphasis here. Beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So where do we go for prophetic words today? You know what I was going to say. You could finish the sermon. You go to Scripture. You go to Scripture, not to a person's private premonition about something that they claim to have seen or heard or know that nobody else knows. Uh, That's almost like a Gnosticism, if you ask me. Like, only some people have certain access to certain knowledge. I don't don't know about that, but all I, I do know is that Peter is instructing us to look to the holy prophets, to look to the apostles as the only safe, reliable, true, infallible guide of God's will for your life. Let's pray. Father... Lord, I understand that this is not an easy subject for many of us because some of us are on the opposite end of this whole debate. Some of us are in transition. Some of us are thinking through it. I just pray, Father, that we would, in the spirit of the text, that we would search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. And, uh, Lord, I pray that above everything, as we began that we would not be those who quench the Spirit, that we would not in our own lives live in such a way that we quench the Holy Spirit of God who has been given to us as a deposit, who's been given to us as a down payment of our redemption. Help us to be sensitive, O God, to Your Spirit. Help us to be uh, intimate with Your Spirit. Help us to be acquainted with His operations in our lives. Help us to be sensible, to be pliable and teachable, that your Spirit may have open access to our hearts, to test our hearts, to search our hearts, and to intercede on behalf of our groanings. Father, we thank you for your Spirit. May your Spirit fill us continually. And may your Spirit produce in us above all else holiness. We can have, as even the Apostle Paul said, you can have all these gifts, but if you do not have love, you're you're nothing. And so, above all, we pray that your Holy Spirit would manifest itself in our lives through virtue to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.